0: What happens when you're three or four weeks into a new diet program, and the novelty starts to wear off? Why does that happen? Why is it harder to keep going in week four rather than week one? What's different? How is it that you can be motivated in other areas of your life like work or taking care of your family, but you just can't seem to muster that same motivation and consistency for yourself? Well, today, we're going to talk about why it is completely natural that it's harder to motivate on week four, rather than week one, and why you can be successful in other areas of your life, like work or taking care of your family, but not this one. And best of all, we're gonna talk about three specific ways to adjust your thinking. Ready to bust through the novelty gap? Oh yeah, let's get to it. Do you ever feel like you know all the diet rules about eat this, but not that, and so you know what to do, but you just have a hard time actually doing it? I'm here to tell you, you are not the problem. Hi, I'm Lizzie. Welcome to the Confident Body Podcast, where we talk about all the mental and emotional parts of weight loss that diets don't tell you. It's time to step past the shame and the guilt from old diets and stop feeling like you're waiting to lose weight in order to fully participate in life. If you're ready to drop the diet mindset and learn what it takes to truly feel happy and confident in your own skin, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Well, hello. Thank you so much for being here today. Welcome back. I'm so grateful that you are here. Today, we are talking about something that I hear a lot. It's when you're working on something, you're trying something new, a new diet program, a new weight loss program. And you know, the first week or two, things are going well. Week three, you're kind of, you know, muscling your way through it. And by week four, you're like, okay, the novelty is wearing off. I just can't motivate myself to, to keep going. I, I just can't even. I get it. In fact, back in the day when I was working for a weight loss company, a client wrote in and said this to me. She said, I haven't had any successes in a while, and I'm, the only thing that's been helping me is I stopped myself from eating one big sugar cookie on Sunday, so that's a plus. But overall, I've just lost steam as the novelty of this program is worn off, and then of course there's the harder work of digging into my mental habits around eating. More recently, I've become frustrated with the fact that I can be incredibly motivated. I'm a motivated person. I've always been motivated in my education, and my career, caring for my family. I push myself and my limits all the time to achieve a goal and move forward. I found the same thing with my son, who's now one years old. I can do anything for him. It doesn't matter the time, how much energy it takes, or the skill, I will figure it out. And despite all that drive that's in me clearly, I still can't have the self control and the motivation to get myself healthy and do what's best for myself. Why is this? I'm committed to recording my food daily. And it's really something I want to tackle. Why won't I do something about it? I'm so frustrated with myself. But at the same time, I don't have the energy to care. Oh, Oh, I get this. It can be so frustrating. Why do we lose momentum? How is it that we can be disciplined and motivated in some areas of our lives and not others? So three specific reasons, and they all come back to, it's just your brain. Doing what brains do, being a brain. So number one, it's just your brain. So our brains have a natural default setting. Back in the day, caveman days, the cave gal who was always on the lookout for what's wrong, she was the one that survived long enough to pass along her genes. And so we have this default setting of wait a minute what's wrong what's going wrong with the situation that is the way our brains are wired that's if you do nothing else that is the way your thinking will go Then we have we go on a diet when we pre- we create this diet mentality which in the very nature of a diet is that it's temporary it feels like I can change my be- my behavior my habits I can do this thing I can follow the rules for a certain amount of time and it makes you it kind of sets you up for what happens next like once i finish the the program then what well your brain is like well then we get to go back to normal because normal feels safe normal is the familiar and that's what we like your brain does not like change again your brain's default setting is to look for what's wrong in the environment and change equals a threat and so when you've got a diet and you're doing this program your brain is actively working to get back to normal. So, this is hard. When when you when you're really forcing yourself to do a program that feels really hard, there's a part of your brain that's like, "How much longer do we have to keep doing this?" And also, I'm looking for progress because progress is what motivates us to keep going. It's hard to see progress in weight loss, and certainly not at the pace that we would like to see it. And so, your brain is like, "I'm not seeing the progress I want to see." this is hard. When do I get to stop? We only see what's not working. And that feels bad. And so naturally, your brain would be like, why do I keep going? This isn't working. I don't like it. I want to stop. And so that's why week four can be so much harder than week one. Because your brain is looking for progress. Your brain is thinking how much longer do I have to keep doing this until I can go back to normal. And it doesn't feel good. And so that is why all of the kind of resistance starts to to creep up after, quote unquote, the novelty has worn off. So reason number two, why it's normal that week four is harder than week one is it's just your brain doing what brains do. So in general, the brain is a pretty energy expensive organ. It uses up a lot of energy in the body. And particularly the prefrontal cortex, where we make our decisions and the the kind of more human part of our brain takes up a lot of energy. And so the brain is very good at looking for patterns. It's looking for something that gets repeated. And it's like, oh, great, I have a pattern, I can now delegate it to the lower brain to the subconscious brain that doesn't take up as much energy. And so your brain, that's where habits come from. Your brain is looking for patterns to make into a habit that it can delegate Underneath the surface of your awareness, so it doesn't have to think about it, and so our old habits are there for a reason, and that's why it's normal for in week four, your brain wants to go back to those old habits because it's been ingrained in that pattern. It's just your brain doing what it's supposed to do of saying, "This is the pattern we've repeated, so this is what we're supposed to do." I once heard an analogy, and I think I probably mentioned this on the podcast before that like old old patterns of thought, old patterns of of action are like ski tracks in the snow. And the more you go down a certain route of a certain ski track, it becomes kind of a rut and the walls of the ski track get higher and higher. And therefore it's harder and harder to get out of that old ski track. Whereas new habits are like new ski tracks in the snow. What's interesting about habits is that those old ski tracks, those old habit patterns don't go away when we create a new habit. The new habit gets layered on top of it. And so as nice as it would be to just sort of like take a magic eraser and erase that old habit, unfortunately, that's not the way the brain works. You may have heard the phrase that neurons that fire together, wire together. And so an old habit is a string of neurons that have fired together many, many times. And the more they fire together, they get what's quote called myelinated. That's kind of like a protective sheath that goes over the neurons and that becomes a really solid pathway in the brain. So when you're trying to create a new habit and sort of disassemble that old habit, that old myelinated neuronic, neur, how do you say that? The the neuronal path, ooh, there we go, neuronal path. That has been established is still there. You're just trying to create a new neuronal path or basically a collection of neurons that fire together with your new habit. And so What's happening at week 4 is that old strong path is very well grooved and the new path that you're trying to create is not. It's it's fresh. It's easy to kind of, you know, wobble off course. And so when week 4, your brain is trying to go back to the old patterns and it's going to happen. It's normal. Expect it. It's a question of reps. How many repetitions do you have of that old pattern, that old habit? And how many repetitions do you have of the new pattern, the new habit? It's going to take, you know, maybe half as many new reps as the old one to start creating a easy path where you don't have to think about it as much. So if you're in week four, and you're like, this should be easier by now, check your expectations. You know, how many times did you do that old habit? It's a question of math. Now, I'm not saying that you have to have the exact same number of new reps as the old reps for the new habit to take place, but you do have to come, you know, at least halfway there. You've got to give yourself the grace and the time to really be terrible at it at first because that old pattern is well-established, it's well-myelinated, those walls of the ski track are pretty high. So give yourself the grace that you're going to slip back into the old pattern sometimes and it's okay. You get to get up, dust yourself off, and try again so you can get enough new reps in that new habit pattern so it begins to start to feel natural to your brain. You begin to get those neurons wiring together to give yourself a chance at that new habit becoming a pattern. Okay, reason number three that week four is harder than week one is, yep, you guessed it, it's just your brain. In this case, we're talking about how we are naturally wired to take care of others. I was listening to something the other day, and it talked about like you got to know your why. And the speaker was saying, "All right, take a, a a a woman who is running down the street, and she's jogging, and you know a big dog starts barking at her and chasing her, and she runs away, and you know she's running as fast as she can to get away from the dog. That's that's one example. Then rewind and take the same woman, but now she is a mom and she's got a baby in the jogger stroller." and the big dog comes and barks, she doesn't run away, she stops and addresses the dog. She knows she cannot outrun the dog, especially with a baby stroller, but she is gonna protect that baby with her life if it takes, if it requires it. And so the why is so much stronger when she is taking care of her baby versus when she is taking care of herself. And we're the same way in all aspects of our lives. A lot of times we feel like we almost have to earn our worth, whether it's I'm, "I work hard at work," or I, "I work hard at home and I take care of the kids, and therefore I am worthy of whatever." You know, it, it feels like the only way we count sometimes is in what we do, not so much in just who we are. It's really hard to accept that we're allowed to take time for ourselves. We are social creatures. Sometimes it is so much more motivating to strive for the things that will earn us points in the eyes of others, like our tribe, that could be our family, our parents, society, the moms at preschool pickup, rather than nurturing ourselves. To nurture ourselves sometimes feels self-indulgent, egotistical, extravagant, selfish, And those are not attractive qualities, not according to the tribe, and thus not according to that internal voice in our heads. So we've got three reasons why it's just your brain being your brain, but it's very natural that week four in a new program feels really a lot harder than week one. The novelty is worn off because your brain is working against you. Okay, great. So what do we do about it? So here we're going to talk about three specific steps to counter those previous three points so that you don't have to worry about the novelty wearing off by week four or five. All right. So step number one, don't diet. I want you to think about your health and your weight loss journey differently. Don't ever tell yourself you're going on a diet because the nature of a diet is that it is temporary and that sets you up for failure eventually. What I want you to think about instead is any change I make, am I willing to do this five years from now? If yes, go for it. If not, awesome. Dial it back, cut it in half, cut it in, in half again. Make your change small enough that it doesn't trigger the fight or flight response in your brain And then you can kind of sneak underneath the radar of that change is a threat, you know, that that part of the subconscious mind that's always looking for what's wrong. Another way to think about it is give yourself a goal almost like on a spectrum. So I want you to have a goal that you're you're striving for. But also, what would you still be happy with on days that life does not go according to plan? Because let's face it, there are a lot of days that life doesn't go according to plan. Life is like that. And so let's say you're trying to walk on the treadmill 30 minutes a day, five days a week. Fantastic, go for it. And I also want you to have a backup goal. Uh, Like I just did something and so I can still feel successful on that day. So life didn't go according to plan. On those days, I feel like I can still get on the treadmill for five minutes. So you're aiming for 30 minutes, but I'll still feel successful if I got on the uh, treadmill for five minutes. Give yourself a goal kind of on a spectrum. Make it as easy as possible to feel successful. And failure is normal. Instead of thinking of it as failure, think of it as opportunity. Anytime that something doesn't go according to plan, anytime that you want to go off your meal plan, anytime that you ate something that you feel like you shouldn't have, instead of treating yourself with judgment and self-recrimination, treat yourself with acceptance and look at it as an opportunity to learn. Diets don't give you the grace of messing up. Like where in the diet plan does it say, here's what you do when you fall off the diet? Nowhere. And so that's another reason to not go on a diet. Treat any change as I am doing my best. It's a science experiment. Anything that happens, anything that results is all data informing my experiment. It is not a judgment on my character or me as a person or my success or failure on this quote unquote diet. So give yourself the grace to be allowed to fail and mess up and treat it as an opportunity. So point number one, don't go on a diet. Point number two, think of it in terms of reps, repetition. Okay, so we've got the, the when you mess up, there's going to be that natural feeling of failure, like, shoot, I messed up, I didn't go according to plan. You know, what happens to those feelings when you're like, okay, this failure is an opportunity. Does that feeling of failure just go away? Sadly, no. You need to proactively practice the thoughts you want to choose. Remember, the default setting of your brain is to look for what's wrong, to look for how this is not working. So if you want to have a chance to to get in those new reps and that new ski track, You've got to proactively practice the thoughts you want to choose. Imagine this. Imagine you were trying to get better at basketball free throws and you were like, okay, so how am I going to get better at basketball free throws? You would go practice, right? It's the same with our thoughts. You can't expect to sit on the couch for a month and get better at basketball free throws. Likewise, you can't expect to have more positive, optimistic thoughts about your new habits that you're forming if you don't proactively Practice them. Our brain's natural default setting is to a negative bias. And so you must think what you want to think on purpose. I once heard the analogy of like, you should choose your thoughts each day the way that you choose clothes in the morning. And actually, I do this on purpose by writing a note of what I want my brain to be focusing on, and then I put it in my pocket. You know, it can be anything around like, Um, everything is always working out for me or I get to work with amazing people or my body is a miracle and I am grateful for it every day. Whatever it is, wherever you want to choose your thoughts, you got to do so on purpose. And quick note, we talked about this before, those thoughts that you are proactively practicing need to feel true because then you got to look for examples of how it is actually true in your life. You don't want to trigger the internal BS meter in your brain. So you want whatever thoughts that you are proactively practicing on purpose, make sure they feel at least a little bit true. All right, so that's step number two for how to address the feeling of novelty wearing off. Step number three is I want you to redefine what it means to serve, what it means to serve others in your your life. So I'm going to tell you a quick story. So I had a client named Sarah, and she... And I were kind of sitting together at a table and she leaned in close, kind of whispered and she was like, my biggest struggle is permission. Sometimes it feels like a really big hurdle to make it feel okay to take care of myself. Sarah is is not unusual. A lot of times people say to themselves, I feel like I don't deserve it. Like, why should I be better or better than or higher than people in my family in terms of my priorities? It was interesting when she asked me that I paused and I said well how would God answer that question about why should you be higher than your family in terms of priorities and it was really interesting that kind of made her pause and she was like well I never I never really thought of it that way before and then after a minute she said well I think that God would say that I am his child too and just as much as anyone else in my family so why should I deserve any less than any of them and then she went even further and she said, I could even say that God would tell me that I am his divine instrument and I am beautifully and wonderfully made, handcrafted by God. I mean, the Bible even says that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So who am I to say that God is wrong? Yeah. Yeah. You are powerfully and wonderfully made and you are a temple of God's Holy Spirit. And so why do you deserve any less? someone in your family. Sometimes we need to realize that loving and caring for ourselves is an act of love and care and obedience to God as well. Sometimes the hardest part is to receive. You know, actually, I love this part because um, you know that feeling when you give your child or someone a gift, like on Christmas morning, and it is so fun to watch that person open up your present, and it feels so good to love and see them really excited about your present. I mean, what if God is that way with us? But when we don't give ourselves permission to receive, we're like that kid on Christmas morning who's like, oh, yeah, I already have this, thanks. Or like, oh, I don't really need it. Um, you know, that's such a bummer. And when we are asked to receive in terms of giving ourselves permission to take care of ourselves, to have time for ourselves, to even just rest, for goodness sake. That is glorifying God. We're like that kid on Christmas morning who's like, thank you for this gift. It's the best thing ever. I love it. What if everything in your life, including your body, is like a present from God on Christmas morning, and he just can't wait to see your eyes light up and feel your joy, And reveling in the awesomeness of his gift. How does God feel when he gives you a gift and you're like, oh, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to take time for myself. I don't deserve to feel good. How does that, how does does God feel, you think? Hear this. Receiving is supposed to feel good. It is okay to receive. In fact, I would say it is a gift to others to receive. What if each day could be an opportunity to be that kid who's just so excited about their gifts and make God feel really awesome at the same time? And you do that by allowing yourself to receive. Now you might be saying, okay, um, great, but how? I've already got so much on my plate. Where am I going to find the time to take care of me? And I get it, life is busy. There's always something to be done and there's things that can derail derail, your progress all the time. Someone gets sick, the sink is leaking, you're trying to sell your house, um, the dog just pooped on the floor, things, life can get overwhelming. And yet, let me ask you this. How often do you ask for help? Yeah, I know. I struggle with this one too. We don't ask for help, but we say, I'm just so stressed. Life is a really busy week. I don't know about you, but I am much more comfortable offering help than asking for help. I mean, why do you think that is? It feels good to help, right? I mean, it makes sense. But maybe it feels just a tiny little bit vulnerable to ask for help. And um, also, I might have to give away a little bit of my drama of like, oh, I did so much today. Oh, poor me. Yeah, my husband um, has been very clear on how not great that is when I do that. So I'm trying to get better at it. (laughs) But think about it. If you love to help others, how do you think others feel when they get to help you? Well, usually it probably feels really awesome. It's part of our human nature to want to help. Helping intrinsically makes us feel good. And so by allowing someone to help you, you are giving them a gift of feeling good, feeling useful, feeling needed. Everyone wants to feel needed. So when you're thinking about how do do I allow myself to receive? Try shifting your thoughts away from I'm a burden to others if I ask for help. And towards when I ask for help, I'm giving somebody else the opportunity to feel amazing. When we ask for help, we give others the chance to share their gifts with us and to give them a chance to be in service. And that is a beautiful thing. Not only that, But how do you show up when you feel like you're doing everything and you're exhausted all the time and you're taking everything on your shoulders? I mean, I don't know about you, but I definitely show up kind of grumpy that way. How do your loved ones want you to show up for them? Tired and resentful or maybe refreshed and present? What would happen if you took time for yourself? What would happen if you allowed yourself to receive? Who would you be when you show up for others after taking time to care for yourself? It does not serve you or your loved ones to think that taking time for yourself is taking time away from them. It does not serve you or your loved ones to tell yourself that there is something quote more valuable that you should be doing instead of taking care of you. You are the valuable thing. You are the asset. You are allowed to receive. What if by putting yourself first, you are being better for those that you love? What if by asking for help and allowing yourself to be helped, to receive, is that maybe it's the best gift you can give them? I mean, you charge your phone every night because you know that if you don't, the battery will run out and then it will be useless. Shouldn't you get a chance to recharge, too? You know, we've all heard the commandment to, quote, love our neighbors as our, as yourself. And I, I'll be honest, most of my life I view that from the perspective of, you know, just be nice to other people. But as I've grown older, It seems like a lot of people, especially women, are really able to be nice to others, but not so much to themselves. So what if the commandment is telling you to love yourself in the same way that you love others? Interesting, huh? You have something really special that only you can bring into the world. And by taking care of yourself, you are giving yourself permission to be all of you and bring your unique light Into this world in only your special way, and we need you. So allow yourself to receive. Give yourself that permission. I want you to choose your thoughts the way you choose what you're going to wear each day. And your brain is a puzzle solving machine. Ask it a question, and it'll find an answer. Huge change is built on the back of tiny pieces of evidence proving to your brain that you actually can become the person you want to be. So you've got to look for evidence. And the way you do that is by giving your brain a positive puzzle to solve. Look for little bits of proof of evidence that you are becoming the person you want to be. Those little bits of proof are like the breadcrumbs to your subconscious mind that it needs to follow in order to buy into the person you're becoming. Train your brain to look for those treasures and the pieces of proof with open-ended questions like this. What's an example of how I took good care of myself today? Or how did I show up for myself today? Or how about this? What's a tiny way that I made progress today? Give your brain a puzzle to solve in the form of a positive, open-ended question, and it will get to work finding the answer for you. Whatever you focus on expands. I once heard that our our attention is kind of like the cursor on a computer, you know, like when you hover over a menu, and the menu kind of opens up that like your the cursor is like your focus. And wherever you put your focus, your attention, that expands, that gets bigger. So if you're focusing on how your weight loss journey is hard, how it's not working, how you've lost momentum, you get more of that, it expands in your awareness, versus if you choose a positive open ended question, like, how did I make a little bit of progress today? You get more of that. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find it. So be really intentional about what you're looking for. Here's an analogy. If you change the course of a ship, just two degrees, the ship that's on a journey across the ocean, after a 1000 miles, the ship isn't just in a different direction, it's an entirely different continent. What might do that for your thinking? Where could just a two degree shift in your thinking land you a year from now, five years from now? You'd be in an entirely different continent. You'd be an entirely different person. And it all starts with your thoughts, with just tiny little changes and looking for positive evidence little by little. So here is your tiny confident body action step to put into practice this week. So I'm a visual person, so this week's action step is visually related. I want you to imagine a map. Like, a, like an airplane on a trip. I know like sometimes when I'm sitting in an airplane, the little screen in front of me is like, here's where your airplane is on the trip. So imagine you are the plane and the destination according to your current course is, you know, X, wherever it is. But what if you change the direction by two degrees? Like let's say, an, uh, imagine an airplane takes off from Miami, Florida. A two degree difference in shift in the course over the ocean could be the difference between landing in Egypt or England. Your thoughts are the directional heading. Where would you be one year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, if you'd shifted your directional heading just two degrees? Where are you on the map right now? And then imagine one degree difference doesn't look very different from where you are right now. That's okay. But look at the big picture. Take the 30,000 foot view. Give yourself the gift of perspective. The 1% change in your thoughts today doesn't look like much, but it is a completely different continent when you look at it from the perspective of a lifetime. Make a map, draw the airplane, remind yourself of where you are in the journey of 1% changes. Stay the course. You are worth it. By the way, there is a whole section in my book, You Are a Miracle, that talks about this. It's called Thinking on Purpose. So if you've ever found yourself feeling impatient with the changes or unmotivated after the novelty of a program is worn off, then check out my book. Just search for You Are a Miracle on Amazon. And if there's anything in this episode that has helped you, I would love for you to write a review on iTunes. It helps me know that you're listening and that this is helpful to you. And your review could help someone else decide to take a listen and maybe feel a little bit less alone. Your review might help someone shine their light just a little bit brighter today. And before we go, remember, love yourself. Because the most important relationship you will ever have in this life is the relationship with you. You have the most conversations in life with yourself. And you can make that a helpful conversation. One thought 1% at a time. All right, that's what I've got for you this week. Talk to you next week. Thank you so much for listening today. Seriously, I know it's not a small thing, and I genuinely appreciate it. And I hope it helped you make sure you head on over to confidentbody.coach slash tips and sign up for my seven top tips for little shifts that create big results so that you can start feeling confident in your body right now. I will see you next week. And until then, remember, you are a miracle.